1: The lute was an extremely popular instrument at the Renaissance and Baroque courts of Europe. Lutenists were very well paid. On the 20th of July 1532, Arthur the Luter, spelt L-E-W-T-E-R, was paid £3, 6 shillings and 4 pence in reward by the King's commandment, which is the equivalent of nearly £1500 today. And given that this features in Henry VIII's privy purse expenses, I'm pretty sure that this was a tip beyond his usual earnings court poet Sir Thomas Wyatt riffed on the labour of his lute, wasted on his cruel and ever scornful beloved in more than one poem.
0: My lute awake, perform the last labour that thou and I shall waste, and end that I have now begun. For when this song is said and passed, my lute be still, for I have done.
1: But even for many classical music lovers, the music of the 16th and 17th centuries probably isn't as familiar as that of the 18th and 19th centuries. And so many of us don't know what fascinated the courts and monarchs and poets of the day. Today we're going to try and learn. So I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Linda Sace, who is one of Britain's leading lutenists. She trained at Oxford and the Royal College of Music, has over a hundred recordings to her name, and has broadcast extensively on radio and TV. She's the director of the lute ensemble Chordophony and the principal lutenist of groups including the King's Consort and Ex Cathedra. She is a remarkable musician and musicologist, and it is a great privilege, indeed an absolute treat, to welcome this maestra to not just the Tudors. Linda, could you? Perhaps start by introducing us to the lute at the beginning of our period, which is the sort of late 15th century. Absolutely. And the main thing to think about with the lute is
0: that it's not really one instrument in the way that we think of instruments in other contexts. So, for example, we think of a violin and we all think of more or less the same thing. But the lute encompasses a whole family of different sizes different shapes of instrument which developed historically in many many different ways and sometimes in different ways in different places simultaneously so if we were to take a moment in history say 1610 for the sake of a random number and if we were to drop into an italian court in 1610 we'd find one kind of lute in use there if we were to drop into the french court we'd find a different kind If we were to go somewhere in Central Europe, we'd find yet a different kind. So the lute encompasses a huge range of instruments, also the entire range of tessitura. So from soprano to bass and many, many different kinds of music. So it's a whole world and a European lute is only one example of a worldwide family of plucked instruments because the lute is also a generic label for any
1: kind of plucked stringed instrument with a neck and a body. So perhaps you could give us the absolute basics though even though we've got lots of variety and actually I wanted to ask you about how music varied across Europe so that's fascinating but the characteristics of a lute what's the construction and arrangement as it were of a renaissance lute?
0: Okay, so let's take the late 15th century as our starting point, because that's the point where we start to get music written down for the European lute. A lute at that point would have had a body which is pear-shaped and round-backed. It's constructed from several slices of wood. So you take a stick of wood and you slice it very thin, like you're slicing a block of cheese, and you shape the rib from each of these slices, and you bend them using heat over a mould. You start with the middle rib. There's always an uneven number. And then you gradually build up your round back, rib by rib, until you have this sort of half pear shape. It then has a neck with a peg box fitted on the end, which is bent back at roughly a 90 degree angle. You have a soundboard, which is a very, very thin slice of spruce somewhere in the region of a millimetre and a bit in thickness so incredibly fragile and the thing that most people find astonishing about a lute is it's incredibly lightly built it's an incredibly sophisticated structure and this soundboard is braced inside with little pieces of very carefully placed wood which just support it and stop it collapsing under the string tension It has a bridge which is glued to the soundboard and your strings are tied to that. So all of the pull of the strings is on this tiny little bit of wood which is glued down. It's not like a violin where the strings go over the bridge and are then anchored to a tailpiece that then is anchored at the end of the instrument. So we're dealing with a very fragile, delicate structure here. We've got tuning pegs in the peg box which are friction pegs not like the geared machine heads on a modern guitar. And we have gut strings and we have gut frets which are tied around the neck. So, not like a modern guitar which has metal bars inlaid in the neck to stop the strings against. Everything is movable. And in addition to having to tune the strings, we can also move our frets around to get different tunings called temperaments. So, It's an incredibly sophisticated instrument, even at that stage in its history, which is the point where we have the first beginnings of written-down music.
1: And how was music changing in this period of time? Because it's obviously an age of great development musically.
0: Absolutely. Again, the late 15th century is something of a crunch moment for us because prior to that, the lute had been largely a melodic instrument. It was played with a plectrum, which came from the oud of the Islamic world. So one would be playing very elaborate single lines on the lute with five courses of strings, five pairs of strings. The lowest or sixth course got added at the very end of the 15th century. So the range of the instrument increased at that point. And then in a monumental step forward, they abandoned the plectrum and started plucking the strings with the fingers which immediately makes polyphony possible so at that point instead of having an instrument which can play tunes we have an instrument which can play polyphony is fully chromatic which many instruments were not at this period so the harp which is a reasonable comparison to the lute the harp was not chromatic at this point so the lute immediately has a big advantage over its nearest rival And we can play dynamics, which keyboard instruments at this period couldn't. So these three things together, dynamics, chromaticism and polyphony, were the three things that took the lute right to the forefront of music throughout the 16th and 17th centuries. They're the things that made it special, useful, versatile.
1: That is really interesting and does start to explain why the lute was so popular, because if you've got polyphony, that's a big difference. It suddenly gives such a range and depth of experience musically by comparison to what else you could hear at the court.
0: Absolutely. That also means that it was useful in a variety of contexts. So if you're able to play polyphony, you can play on your own. You're not required to have A colleague supplying a ground or a bass dance tenor or something for you. You can play completely alone and in a completely self-contained way. You can also accompany anything, another instrument, another lute, a voice. You can arrange vocal music onto the lute. We call that an intabulation and we have hundreds and hundreds of them in the historical repertory. You can play dance music. So the lute made its way into just about every genre of music and very quickly some of the earliest surviving sources that we have already include free-form instrumental pieces prelude type pieces they call them richer cars in italian but also in tabulations of vocal pieces so even in the very earliest sources that survive we've got dances we've got vocal pieces we've got free-form pieces all of them exploiting
1: the things that the lute could offer. I fear I may not be able to understand the answer to this question, but what sort of sources are you looking at to understand the type of music that's played? And is it very different to reading modern music? It's totally different to reading modern music. We have two classes of
0: sources which we use. We've got printed sources from very early on in the lute's history. The earliest are from 1507 from the Venetian presses of Ottaviano Petrucci. They're beautiful examples of triple impression printing, absolutely exquisite documents. And we also have manuscript sources, which can be anything from, again, a beautiful presentation. One of our earliest sources is the so-called Capirola manuscript, which survived because its scribe decorated the margins of the music with Gorgeous polychrome pictures of animals, flowers, butterflies, and he actually writes in the beginning of the manuscript that he valued his master's music so much that he wanted the music to survive, so he made the manuscript beautiful, so that it would be valued if the music fell out of fashion, which is exactly what happened. And the manuscript is still with us today. It dates from around 1519. And at the other end of the spectrum, we've got scruffy little manuscripts which are very hard to read but again give a wonderful insight into the day-to-day jottings of a 16th century lutinist. and they're the kind that I've always found most interesting and in fact the very first lute source which I bought was one such manuscript it's got shopping lists for building materials at the back it's got pen trials in the margins It's got the ownership signatures of several different owners at the front. Many of the pieces within it are incomplete, full of mistakes, full of little patches where, oops, the quill shed a lot of ink where it wasn't supposed to. Very messy with hand-drawn staves and rhythm signs that go a little awry. So a very interesting and varied arrangement of sources available to us. Many of these are available in printed facsimiles. Nowadays, of course, a lot are available in digital facsimiles, which is a wonderful situation for us. You can actually go online and download gigabytes of fabulous primary source. And players have always been at the forefront of musical facsimile production for decades now for the simple reason that our notation doesn't lend itself well to modern translation, so we also have scholarly editions that were made by and for musicologists where they translated the loop notation into a modern keyboard score, but that's quite difficult for us to play from because it takes up much more space. So you have page turn problems. The lute came in many different tunings. So the tablatures from which we would originally have worked, they tell you where to put your fingers on the instrument. So if the composer decides to change the tuning for a particular piece, it doesn't matter. You just follow the instructions that say, put your fingers here. But once that's translated into a piano stave, you really need to know where all of your notes are. Also, a significant amount of editorial material gets introduced in that translation. It's a little bit like taking an early modern text and translating it into both another language and modernising the orthography and having to make some decisions where you can't read a little bit. It's all of those things together. So for us to be able to go back to the primary sources has always been a significant thing. And it's one of the things that got me interested in the lute, At the very beginning, I came to the lute from the modern flute. I was used to going to the music shop and walking my fingers along the shelf and buying somebody's publication and thinking, right, I'll learn this. And then to have a primary source available and to have to do battle with all of the problems of that at first hand, it was a revelation and it was something that the excitement of that has never left me.
1: I understand that insofar as I have that with looking at early modern manuscripts and the paleography, looking at the handwriting of the period. So I guess it's a similar thrill.
0: Yes. And sometimes you open a manuscript and there's also that feeling that I might be the first person to play this music in 400 years. And that's also a thrill. I might be the first person to puzzle out this particular piece to solve the problems that might lie within it to unscramble the errors in the original. I've always been a little bit of a nerd in terms of unscrambling things. I've always liked puzzles and picking my way through difficult hands and sorting out the bar lines that are in the wrong place, that sort of thing. So tackling a loot source can be
1: all kinds of thrill for me. I'm jumping ahead here, but you're implying that there was a period of time in which lute playing was not particularly fashionable and so therefore many of these pieces of music would have fallen out of favour and that's why someone might not have played it for so long. Is that right?
0: That's absolutely right. In fact out of fashion is an understatement. The lute basically became extinct at the end of the 18th century. Different times in different places, but during the course of the 18th century, it fell out of favour and it hung on in a few mostly Central European courts where perhaps you had a ruler who liked the instrument kept on a particularly favoured player as an employee at the court and therefore it might last perhaps a decade or two longer than in most of Europe but certainly by the end of the 18th century it was largely gone and gradually we had a trickle of lute music just one kind of lute that hung on and gradually overlapped with the early guitar. People also have an idea that the guitar arose out of the lute. Well it didn't, they coexisted for two centuries. And then, of course, the guitar continued and the lute largely fell out of favour. And we start to get the very beginnings of a revival of interest in the 19th century. But it's not until the early 20th century that we start to get a serious revival of interest in early music, not just the lute, but many other aspects of early music. And gradually that's gathered pace. And now we have the situation that we have today where it's more well-known, it's more mainstream. But the vast majority of my luteinist colleagues still trained as guitarists and made the switch. It's still relatively rare for people to start learning
1: the lute today. So let's... Dial back a bit. We were at the beginning of the 16th century, I think we'd got to, and we have five or six courses, which are the pairs of strings. Where does it go from there? What's the development of the lute over the course of the century?
0: The principal one is a constant, ongoing process of adding extra strings, always at the bottom end of the instrument, so gradually increasing the bass register of the instrument. So first of all, with the six-course lute they experimented with in some pieces dropping the pitch of the lowest course by a tone which gives you a nice drone tuning at the bottom of the instrument but brings all kinds of problems with 16th century string technology you basically end up with a thick gut string which goes third and if you tune it down a tone it's even more of a third and even less of a note so that was not brilliantly successful so Gradually string technology improved, and then it became feasible to include this lower note, the detuned note. And then they thought, well, it would be more convenient if we had that note on its own string so we don't disturb the basic tuning of the top six courses. And then it seems there were more improvements in string technology because we go quite abruptly from having a bottom string that's adding just a tone to the range of the instrument, to a bottom string which is adding a fourth. That's quite a big step. And then gradually they filled in the gap and added stepwise bases at the bottom of the instrument. So we'd have seven courses and then eight and then nine. And by the time you get to around 1600, your fashionable lute was starting to have 10 courses And then things start to get very interesting because in some parts of Europe, principally France and Northern Europe, they kept the basic shape of the lute with one bent backpack box and put an 11th course on it. Meanwhile, in Italy, the famous Italian design sense comes to the fore even then. And they decided, well, we like these bass strings, but they don't sound so great when they're the same length as the other strings on the instrument. They'd sound much better if they were longer. So you start to find different ways of adding extended bass strings to the lute. This happens also in parts of Northern Europe. We have in the Low Countries, a very elegant type of lute that has one peg box going backwards and a second one going straight on. So you get this sort of double-headed lute. They're very, very prevalent in 17th century Dutch paintings. That might give people a little hook where they can go spotting them. But the Italians came up with these extraordinary constructions where you would have a very long extended neck on the instrument. And at the same time, they took one of the larger members of the Lute family because the Lute, in the course of the 16th century, had also become a consort instrument, like the recorder or the viol. They came in all kinds of different sizes. So the Italians took a bass lute and decided, well, if we tune it up a lot, like a fourth or a fifth, we get a much better sound in the bass. But then, of course, it's like taking a cello and trying to tune it like a violin. Your top string is not going to make it. It's just going to break. So they replaced this top string with a thicker string tuned to the same note an octave lower. Hang on to that thought for a moment. That meant they could tune the whole instrument a little bit higher. So kind of like getting your cello to be tuned like a viola. And then they thought, oh, well, that worked. Let's do it again. So then you get the same problem with the second string. Same solution, thicker string, same note, octave lower. So now you've got this incredibly tangled up tuning. But the bottom end of your lute is sounding much better because basically you've got a big cello-like body with violin bass notes on it and it sounds great you've got nice thin strings it's all working well you've completely lost your top end but you've got this nice bass that sounds good and then they wanted to get back the bass register that they lost by tuning up the instrument so they put a long 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 neck on it and they put long bass strings single bass strings on it these bass strings can be two meters long the instruments are huge And that was the only way in which they could get a really low note with early 17th century string technology. You can't just keep making the string thicker. You can't make a wire string and wrap it with multiple metal wrappings in the way that piano strings are made. With a gut string, you can basically make it longer and you can load it to some degree with metal salts. There's one Italian string maker who's done amazing research on the composition of strings. And he's now offering us strings which are impregnated with metal salts, which also ties in with the history of art in a very interesting way. We find lots of paintings where the strings are coloured. And hey, presto, this loading with metal salts gives us coloured strings that look like the ones in the paintings. So there are all kinds of things coming together here. There's a desire to have more base register on the lute, At the same time, we're talking early 17th century, and especially Italy here, there was a whole new type of music which was being developed, which eventually gave us monody, recitative, opera. So, wanting to accompany the voice in a very flexible, very particular way that would enable the accompanist to follow every last nuance of the text. And so we have a different accompanimental instrument and we also have a different accompanimental style. And this is the point at which luteinists, especially those doing accompaniment, start to abandon the tablatures that we had used all through the 16th century, these very lute-specific notations, and to use what became figure bass or basso continuo. So we now find music written in just a bass line with some numbers and some accidental sharps and flats underneath the notes, which together tell us what bass note to play and what chord to put with it. But exactly how you put the chord with the bass and exactly how you create your accompaniment is left up to the player. The composer is giving us the bare bones in much the same way that you might get the sketch of a pop song today. You might get the tune and the chord symbols, but you won't have every last detail of the song written out. So there's a lot of improvisation on the part of the player. And so the lute has moved into a whole new world of being a continuo instrument and accompanimental instrument. And meanwhile, in parts of Europe, the solo tradition continues. So especially in France, the French developed a very particular, very, very delicate, very precise form of solo playing and kept going with their single peg box loops. Whilst the Italians were giving us these extraordinary two-metre-long instruments which they called kitharone or in colloquial usage tioba. So we've got the posh humanist name for the instrument, the kitharone, which comes from the ancient Greek kithara. And we have the familiar colloquial tioba, which gets translated into English as theorbo, And that is a little bit like today we could call the violin the violin or the fiddle, It's the official name plus the colloquial name.
1: So we are seeing a process where the instrument is, I suppose, getting deeper and richer and having that much more breadth and also changing usage, but that varies a lot over Europe. Very much so,
0: and in certain parts of Europe they were still, in the early 17th century, playing the six or seven-course lute that much of Europe had left behind. So if you go to what became Germany, Bohemia, Central Europe, we still find a lot of music being written for the six or seven course lute in a particular German form of tablature, which was by that point obsolescent because it wasn't able to cope as well as other tablature types with the constant addition of courses. The type of tablature which eventually became universal In the 17th century, was what had been the French style for the simple reason that it copes very well with additional bass strings. The Italian tablature can also cope with bass strings, but only if they're open. It gets very difficult if you want to fret these extra courses, and the French system can do that. So that's Another aspect of reading lute music, which a lot of my non-lutenist colleagues find a bit bewildering, is that we have to read all these different types of notation. So four or five different types of tablature, which are lute-specific. Staff notation in every shape and form, so every clef. And nowadays, if you learn some instruments, you're required to learn one or two, maybe three clefs. We have to know all of them. And nowadays, also, we're required to be able to read music in keyboard transcription, in guitar transcription. So there's quite a lot of brain ache involved in reading the music. Okay, Tristan, you've got fifty seconds. Go, right. so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the ancients, I hear you say. Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world.
1: We've got the big names. It's one of these great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big names topics the man destroys seven
0: legions in a day no one in history has done that subscribe to the ancients from history hit wherever you get your podcasts from oh and russell crow if you're listening we would love to have you on the ancients spread the word people spread the word
1: Wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. It feels like you're telling me that calling someone a luteinist is like calling them a musician or... A linguist, because you play multiple instruments and you read multiple tablatures, i.e., multiple musical languages. It's extraordinary. It's not just one. That's
0: absolutely the case. And we have an additional complication which our historical forebears didn't have, which is in the course of the lute's main period of usage, players would largely be player composers, they would be playing mostly their own music or at the most the music of their place and time they might move themselves to another court so some noted players would be considered almost as diplomatic gifts a ruler might loan a particularly fine lute player to another court for a short time as a kind of diplomatic gift or a gesture of diplomatic friendship so lutenists might move to a different cultural setting and their they would encounter a different kind of music, other composers' music. But by and large, the music that they played was of their era and of their place. And nowadays, my diary might have included playing plectrum lute for something single line one day, and then the next day, I might be taking my Theorbo out to accompany a Handel opera. And then perhaps that director might need me to take a baroque guitar as well. And then somewhere later that week, I might need to play a piece of solo music on a Renaissance lute or some chamber music on an 18th century lute where I would be perhaps working with a quartet and playing an obligato part. So the size of the instrument that I am required to play can be anything from two metres long to mandolin sized It can be playing anything from a single line with a plectrum up to a complete accompaniment. I can be reading from any one of many, many, many different types of notation. I can be alone on the stage or I can be on stage with a full symphony orchestra and a choir. The music I'm playing might be, well, the earliest music I've been asked to play is probably 11th century and the most recent, the ink was barely dry on it.
1: Well, I was impressed before, but now I am blown away. (laughs) That's just extraordinary. Perhaps this might be a moment to say, could we hear you playing some? Well, I have one lute here. As Linda tunes up, she's just getting this beautiful instrument out. One thing we haven't mentioned is quite how gorgeous the carvings are on the front of the lute, on the soundboard. Well, not just the carving. In the centre of the soundboard of every lute...
0: There is a rose, which is a circular carved decoration. It's a pattern of holes. The holes are then sculpted, so it's a very three-dimensional carving and often has the appearance of tendrils that weave under elements of the pattern. The patterns are all traditional. We often find the same rose pattern popping up on many different lutes. And that's a very, very delicate piece of carving. But the rest of the instrument is also very beautiful because the backs can be made from many different kinds of timber. The one I have in my hands has a striped maple back, which is the same wood that's used for most members of the violin family. And it has a colour varnish on it, which brings up the striping in the wood. Almost any timber could be and was sometimes used for the back of the instrument. So... In the early modern period, we start to find in Europe tropical hardwoods being brought into Europe. They would often come over as ballast in ships that had gone to the New World and would take a cargo out to the New World and would then need to load the ship up with something just to keep it stable on the way back. So... Often that would be tropical hardwoods like rosewood species, snakewoods, ebony, those kind of timbers. We start to find them popping up in loops, usually in the ribs of the back, also as veneer, which strengthened the neck and the peg box and made the fingerboard, which is the piece of the loop, which is under the most wear. So they can be intensely decorative instruments, The one I have in my hands is rather plain, but we've also got instruments which have got inlay everywhere. In many cases they've survived because they're incredibly decorative objects. Some of them have ivory ribs or ivory veneers. But also we find the whole range of indigenous timbers. So yew was very much used for woods because you get this gorgeous color contrast between the heartwood and the sapwood. they would make backs where they would exploit this stripe and get it straight down the middle of the ribs. So at first glance, the shell appears to have twice as many ribs as this actually has. It's a very clever optical illusion. You find ribs like ash, which has the striping of the maple, but also has a very strong stripe perpendicular to it. So you see the structure of the timber. You find lots of fruit woods. You find all kinds of very decorative hardwoods. So they're beautiful
1: objects in their own right. Yes, it looks wonderfully tactile. Anyway, I shall stop talking and let you play something. So I'm
0: going to play a little piece which was published in France in 1529 by Pierre Attenion. It's based on a 15th century bass dance tenor and it's called La Brosse.
1: so enchanting it has so much drama for such a little piece
0: for such a tiny little piece yes and also because it's the dance it has quite a strong rhythmic element and I think this is something which makes it very easy for the modern listener to appreciate a lot of loop music there's a huge amount of dance music in the repertory which is rhythmically very exciting there's a huge amount of Music which is based on popular tunes, ballad tune settings, where people might even recognise their melodies. So, for example, the earliest surviving Greensleeves tune that we have is in a lute manuscript. And a lot of the pieces have a very strong chord structure. So sort of like a 12-bar blues, you can recognise a chord structure under a lot of it. Things like the Passamets, so ground bass, for example, we've got lots of lute pieces built on this chord sequence and once you become aware of it it's like oh oh yes it's that one again in much the same way that a modern listener who likes blues would immediately know by the time you get to the second bar they think oh right this is a blues so there are elements which a modern listener can relate to very very easily.
1: I think that's right. Do you think you could give us some sense of the cultural significance of the lute at this time? Very interesting question
0: On the one hand, we have lots of historical figures at the very highest level who played the lute. So Henry VIII had a whole collection of lutes, an extraordinary collection of lutes. Queen Elizabeth I played the lute. Anne Boleyn played the lute. We also have many printed sources which would have been expensive and which would have appealed to that level of society which had the leisure to play an instrument and the wherewithal to buy these expensive books. We have many manuscripts which clearly come from aristocratic or at least gentrified households where it would be, for example, part of a genteel young lady's education to learn to play the lute. It was considered a very suitable instrument for a lady, because you can sit and look graceful playing it. Works reasonably well with female costume. There's no unseemly posturing or distortion of your face required to play it, as there would be with many wind instruments, for example. So it was very popular with aristocratic ladies. So most of that is pointing us very much towards the top levels of society. And we have various little comments. So there's one 18th century source who says it costs as much to keep a lute as it does to keep a horse. And the cost was not only in the purchase of the instrument, but also in the running costs, because strings were expensive. Strings were sufficiently expensive to be considered an appropriate gift for Queen Elizabeth I. And more than one visitor from other courts brought a present of lute strings. There were running costs, there was the purchase price of the instrument, there were lessons, there was the purchase of music or the labour-intensive copying of music, which required literacy skills. So it's not an instrument for the illiterate levels of society. We do have some iconography, which shows it being used in contexts where one wonders about that. And always with iconography, there's always this question mark of, well, is this representative of a scene that we would actually have seen Or is there an element of fancy on the part of the artist? Is there perhaps an allegorical meaning in the painting that we can unpick? So for the most part, it was an instrument that was used in the top levels of society, but I think a reasonably long way down those social strata, certainly down to the upwardly mobile merchant and gentry classes.
1: It sounds like it might have been an instrument that conveyed one's wealth, so it could be a symbol of wealth. And what you said about strings was really interesting because knowing that we'd be talking, I was tootling around in the privy purse expenses last night. That's where I found Arthur the looter. And I also found that Arthur the looter was paid for a loot for the Duke of Richmond, Henry VIII's illegitimate son, when he was 12. He was only given 20 shillings for that, or a pound, I suppose which equates to roughly £450 pounds a day. But a year later, and we only have the Privy Purse expenses for two or three years, as you probably know, then Philip of the Privy Chamber was paid upon his bill for lute strings, £3, pounds, 6 shillings and fourpence, which was the reward given to Arthur as well at that time. So that sort of £1,500 today, the cost of a couple of cows or so in 1532. I mean, quite a lot of money for lute strings. I was really surprised by comparison to the Charles loot. Oh, yes. And in fact, we have many,
0: many payment records from the later Tudor courts, so from the Elizabethan court and from the early Jacobean courts, where for many, many years, the pay of the court lutenists was more or less stable at £20 a year. And in some cases, we see reimbursements for expenditure on strings for stringing the court lutes, which was also often
1: £20 a year. So it's the equivalent of a skilled annual salary. Wow. And the other thing I was thinking about, cultural significance, once again, talking about the early Tudor period here, but Holbein's Ambassadors famously has that broken string of a lute in it, which I suppose is supposed to signify a lack of harmony. And it's interesting that that conveys that. Yes, it's also a strong
0: element in many vanitas paintings. A broken string conveys impermanence. So that's an element that we see in many 17th century paintings. Another one is the back of a lute. So the lute might be presented in the painting in such a way as to display the very decorative back of the instrument. And a lot of painters took great delight in showing the back as a dusty thing, you know, something that was prized but is now unused, and finger marks in the dust. And again it's a display of virtuosity on the part of the painter because it's really difficult to convey that well. But just those very poignant finger marks in the dust on the back of the lute. They still speak to us today.
1: And do we see music appearing in Renaissance literature as well, that calls on a lute?
0: Oh goodness yes. And in many, many different ways, sometimes just as a passing reference to set the scene, as it were, sometimes in a much more detailed way. So there's one wonderful poem by Thomas Master. It's called On Loot Strings, Cat Eaten. That must have been a bit of a concern when you had gut strings, I suppose. <laughs> exactly. And although we say that they're cat gut, they're actually not made from the gut of cat. It's sheep gut. It's a byproduct of the meat industry and always has been. But the idea of cat gut has died hard. So Masters made this big play on the fact that his cat had destroyed his expensive loot strings in the course of the night. And at the end of the poem, he says, well, you know, watch out because I might make more strings from you. So we find lots of plays on the instrument, its strings. It was also, could be representative of many different aspects in literature. And we find it popping up in, especially 16th century literature. So Shakespeare's plays have many passing references to the instrument. We find it in the poetry of Ronsard. We find it in a lot of Italian Renaissance literature. It's just one of those cultural threads that goes through the literature of the day in much the same way that if you were to search 20th century poetry, like you look at the beats poetry, for example, you're going to find references to the guitar. It was part of their cultural world. So we find the lute being referenced in 16th and 17th century poetry and also plays, of course. There's the famous scene in The Taming of the Shrew where a lute gets broken over someone's head and...
1: (laughs) Yes, the looter's weapon
0: as well as as item of beauty. Yes, it's not a great weapon. The loot is the one that's going to
1: suffer. (laughs) So I'm hoping that people listening to this will be thinking they've got to go away and listen to some of this music. What tips would you give them to teach them how to love music from the 16th and 17th centuries played by the loot?
0: Oh, I would start with one of the great Renaissance Tunesmiths of the Golden Age. And for English speaking listeners, that would probably be John Dowland, court lutenist to James I. Probably the most significant lutenist of the Elizabethan age. He waited a long, long time for his court appointment, didn't manage to secure one under Elizabeth, possibly because he was quite a difficult character. And there was also something of a question mark over his religious orientation. So he finally managed to get himself a court post in 1612, by which time he was a mature man. But he's left us a lot of solo lute music and also a significant body of beautiful lute songs. So I would say, look out for John Dowland, look out for Anthony Holborn, who was another court musician at the Elizabethan court. Wonderful tunesmith, some great dance music by him, some lovely tunes. And to get a flavour of the beginnings of the Renaissance lute, the great lutenist of the first half of the 16th century was the Italian lutenist Francesco da Milano. He shares with Michelangelo the honour of having been called Il Divino by his contemporaries. And he's left us many very beautifully wrought and very virtuosic. Pieces for solo lute. Some of them are in tabulations, so arrangements of vocal music for the lute, and some of them are free form, richer cars, fantasias, which explore all of the technical resources of the instrument.
1: It would be wonderful to end, Linda, if you would consider playing for us again one of those masters you've just mentioned. Would that be possible? Absolutely.
0: I have here a little fantasia by Francesco da Milano. It's a tiny little piece, but it explores and plays with the kind of polyphony that we've been speaking about.
1: very much just wonderful to hear and also I had the special privilege of being able to watch you play that which was my own private little concert thank you very much indeed and thank you so much for talking to us about the lute and I suppose wiping our fingers through the dust so that we can see something of the beauty of the (laughs) the instrument my pleasure If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age